Great to be here again, and great to have some music this week. For those who were here last week, we, we struggled to get the, some music going, but that's great. It was good last week too, by the way. Well, I've been asked to do this series in Daniel, and really enjoying the privilege of doing so. Um, and last week, we, I, well, we were introduced to Daniel and his three friends, we know familiar as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I encourage you to learn the Hebrew names. And I think I said I would test you this morning. So I'd like you to turn to your neighbor or somebody alongside you, and if you're on your own, just think about it. Do you remember those three names? That's the first question. The second question is, what is the significance of them? I'll give you a clue. Daniel means God is my judge. The next one begins with H. The next one begins with M. And the next one begins with A. <laughs> no, you're not cheating. You're smart. I have to do that because I always forget them. But just see if you can just have a little chat for a second and see if you can remember those names. I don't hear much too much words. <laughs> if you want to cheat, you can look at chapter 1 and you'll find them there in verse chapter 1 and verse 6 which reads among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Azariah now, the, the Capernaum students know them because they're Capernaum students perfectly, so you can check with them later. But the point about that was that in those names was the gospel, if you remember. God is my judge. And that's going to happen whether people are indifferent, ignore it, don't believe it. It's an absolute. It is, it is everyone dies and then the judgment, as Hebrew says. And Hananiah is, God is gracious. God is my judge. That's going to happen. But he's also a God who is gracious, and all we have encouraged to do in the gospel is come under, in, in the basis of repentance and faith and trust, under the benefit of that grace. And then we learn more that the one who is gracious, what is he like? Mishael, what is God? Who is he? What is he like? Well, he's a God who is everything, but he's a God who is so loving, and his love isn't just sentimental. His love isn't just lavish loosely, but is expressed in the person of Christ. And when we respond to that love, we must respond to that expression of love, which is Christ being given for us and him choosing to do that. So it's a beautiful word, name, Mishael. And Azariah means this God who is our judge and who is gracious and whose nature is to love us is also an ongoing provider of restoration and healing and his presence. So it's beautiful. So when you chat with somebody this week and it comes up that you went to church, you can, you, you can tell the gospel just by referring to those four names. And remember, I kind of teased that the four guys probably took it, made sure they got in the right order so that the, the four spiritual laws walked into the, into the house or the shop or wherever. Well, we're going to look this Sunday at a different person. And somebody who features in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. So don't be too scared. I'll try and keep to time. But we're going to be looking at Nebuchadnezzar. We've looked at, at Daniel. We've looked at Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We're now going to look at Nebuchadnezzar. Why would we want to look at Nebuchadnezzar? Well, partly because... And this is more technical and probably not too important, but the actual language in the book of Daniel changes from Hebrew to, Arab, to Chaldaic or Aramaic and back to Hebrew. And that's just a, reflecting the theme that when God is speaking of Israel or about Israel or through his servant, Daniel, who was, he was a Jewish, he uses the, the Hebrew language. But when he is speaking to the world and he's speaking to the, the whole world that's not Jewish, then he changes the language. And hence, it's quite a significant, or 
somewhat significant uh, feature. So that's why I think it's justified to say, not need to justify it, but it's valid to say, well, God wanted us to look at Nebuchadnezzar, look at what it looks like when you're not a Jew, when you have, don't have that heritage, you don't have that expectation of priesthood, of tabernacle, of temple, of sacrifices. How does God speak and how does God uh, communicate the same truth that is in those four names to a pagan king such as Nebuchadnezzar? So we're, that's what we're going to do this morning. And I've called it in the outline uh, God's nature and hum, human, humanity's nature and how they are exposed. The first chapter was that Daniel was captured but not conquered. Definitely, if you know the story in the background, that he was taken out of Jerusalem, we would assume, into Babylon as part of Nebuchadnezzar's three invasions and, and being forced into the Babylonian culture and the Babylonian language so that he could become a diplomat, become part of the Babylonian empire. And very much captured out of his familiar and his true identity but he never lost his true identity because it's not based on circumstances or language or food. It's based on our relationship with the living God. And he was never conquered because he never saw himself as first under the responsibility of the king, but always in a relationship with the king of kings, who is forever. And Daniel continued until the day of Darius, 92 years uh, Sorry, 72 years and nine kings later. So we come to look now at this person, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's a very, very powerful man. Arguably, and I think you can make a case, the, if not one of them, if not the most powerful man that has ever lived. I mean, his, his weaponry wasn't, was powerful for its day. It wouldn't be equivalent to the weaponry that recent dictators have had and recent world leaders, obviously they've got incredibly more advanced weaponry in terms of power in that way, but in terms of freedom to do as he wished and do what he wanted, there's, no compar- there's nobody that had more freedom than Nebuchadnezzar. It tells us just in, in passing in chapter 5 and verse 19 that Because of the high position, and let's pick it up at verse 18. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. That's power. When you can, when people, the, the, the whole world is at dread of you and, and under your power, under your sovereignty, and who you want to favor, you can favor, and who you want to destroy, you can destroy. That's power. That appeals to our humanity, to have that kind of cap, uh, status, that kind of capacity. And hence, I think we're going to see in Nebuchadnezzar, really, our own humanity, our own fallen humanity, our own sinful nature, expressed on a big canvas, on a big landscape. Because we don't have quite as much power. We don't have quite as much capacity to destroy who we want to destroy and favor who we want to favor. We're just, we're just one of the, the minions, is how we feel, probably. But innate in us is the same nature that I believe we see in Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we want, I want to explore and trace through this morning. Who are we when we are without the usual trappings, restrictions, uh, inhibitions, and so on? And I challenge myself on this and challenge the students at Cape Inouye when, when I talk through this. You're not really who you are when other people are watching. You're not really who you are when you're at church, necessarily. You're not really who you are when you're in a place where you're known. But when you are away from all of those things, and when you don't have those uh, 
around you who you know and you know you have some accountability and have some knowledge of you, that's probably when you find out who you really are, what your nature really is. When I went to teacher training college as part of the university, um, I was put into a big student high-rise block. There were about 17 floors, there were about 20 rooms on each floor. And when we started the year, every room in that high-rise student accommodation block was identical, absolutely identical. There weren't, it wasn't too flash, but you had a desk, you had a bed, you had a, a little lamp, you had cupboards, and you had a little uh, basin and, and so on. And yet, within a short time, but certainly as the semester went on, every room became personalized. Every room became a reflection of the person who was in the room. And I remember my floor, because we got to know the guys pretty well. And the, the, the smartest guy, his room looked exactly the same, actually, <laughs> because he hardly ever lived there. He was always in the library studying or whatever. And we didn't see much of him. We didn't like him. He was too clever. But further down the, down the corridor, um, there were guys' rooms. And this is going back into the 19, blah, blah, none of your business. Um, it was a very hippie time. It was the psychedelic era. It was a revolution. We we're all going to San Francisco to wear flowers in our hair, if you remember that sort of stuff. And this guy, though, I had a hippie on the floor, a big, you know, big time focused on that. And you go into his room, and he had incredibly colored it. There was, I mean, I'm colorblind, but it was overwhelming. He had a huge, big um, milk churn that had pink spots all over it, and he had, he'd, he'd put. Um, a curtain with all kinds of colored beads on, and, um, and he, there was a lot of what we call jostics, which, you know, smelling stuff, which hid the real stuff he was smoking, and, um, and all that stuff. And you'd go in and he'd go, are you in here? I can't remember his name. Are you in here? And he'd go, yeah, man. You know? And he hardly ever came to class. He didn't have to in those days. The government paid for your fees. You just did what you wanted. And he would be somewhere in the haze in his little room behind his fancy beads and his big milk churn and all that stuff, just living his own little world, his own life, and nobody cared. Another guy further on, he, he I guess he, he, his mum had done everything for him, so he never washed his clothes or anything. You go into his room and you kind of had to climb over a hill. <laughs> And he was somewhere on the other side, this hill of dirty clothes and socks and stuff, and he stank in there. But he was happy. Um, nobody, he didn't, nobody kind of fussed with him. Now, my room <clears throat> had Jesus and the Bible. No, it was, it was pretty middle of the road, I think. But we put a few posters up to reflect um, what I, where I was at. But you see, the point is this, that there was no supervision. There was, it, was, it was not a particularly nice situation in lots of ways, for a lot, in, in some certain ways. But it just made, made the point that we are who we are, not when we're in, in, there's expectations and there's conformity imposed, but when, we, when there's not. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had nobody telling him what to do. Nobody saying, you can't do that or you can do this, but not much. He could do anything he wanted. That's so attractive to this world to have any pleasure you want, to have all power that you want, to have any entertainment, to have anything you do. You can, nobody's going to stop you. There's no free press. There's no international opinions that count. Nobody even can do anything like that. It's totally power at your hands. That's very desirable, very attractive. And there's, there's a lot we could say, but we'll summarize each of these three chapters, looking at his nature. In chapter two, if you're familiar with this, and I probably should have encouraged you to read it uh, through the week, but in chapter two, it begins with, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me. I want to know what it means. And then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. That's appropriate. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces. Now he can do that. <laughs> And your houses, burnt, uh, houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll see for me gifts and rewards and great honor. So, 
tell me the dream and interpret it. Once more they replied, well, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. And you have, you have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Then they, they actually say something profound. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magicians or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. Wrong. <laughs> but that's their perspective. There is a man in whom the Holy, Holy Spirit of God dwells. As we saw last week in chapter 5 with Belshazzar's wife, recognition and also Nebuchadnezzar's later on speaking of Daniel he is one in whom the spirit of the holy God dwells but they they're enchanters they're astrologers they're absolutely incapable of resolving this dilemma but what look at Nebuchadnezzar's nature I want to suggest his the first the first the three words I wanted to summarize human nature in, in the picture of Nebuchadnezzar the first is perplexed He's perplexed. I wanted to use three Ps. Look how he's restless. His dis sleep is disturbed. He's, he's frustrated with the lack of being able to resolve this dream and what it might mean, and these guys are not helping. He's perplexed. He's confused. He's frustrated. That's our human nature on a big scale. We live, humanity without Christ lives with perplexity. What's it all about? Why am I not happy? Why is this all the toys and stuff I've gathered and all the achievements I've had and all the pleasures I've sought, why have they not made me happy? Why am I still disturbed? Why? And this is a guy who can have any pleasure, any pleasure, and yet he can't even sleep, have a decent sleep. What? One of the biggest industries today is the pills that get put people to sleep. And then they have another industry of pills to wake you up in the morning. And this is, we're, this is sophisticated humanity. We think it's sophisticated anyway. Developed society. This is Western society. We're far more consumers of that kind of stuff than people who don't have all the toys and all the wherewithal and the materialism and all the pleasures and all the entertainment that we have. We're, we're a, a, a community without God that is utterly perplexed. It's unsatisfying. It's, it's unresolved. We have that alienated soul. I was going to say my heroes. They, they were my, one of my favorite bands at the time was the Rolling Stones. That tells you about my naughty past. But in, my, in school, it was either the Beatles or the Stones, and there were two gangs. And I started off with the Beatles, but all the cool guys went to the Stones. So I kind of went over. And also their songs were easier to play. It was only three chords for Little Red Rooster. But remember, one of the biggest songs they came out with was I Can't Get No Satisfaction. That's Mick Jagger, and he's still singing it. The guy's crinkly, wrinkly, 70, I think. More. Oh, I've got another. You're a follower. 72. Okay. When's his birthday? There you go. We'll have to have a bit of a chat afterwards. 72, and the guy is still strutting his stuff around the world, saying, I can't get no satisfaction, because it's true, I believe. He's not a fool, actually. If you listen to him being interviewed, he's quite articulate. and he's. But if you told him, I I'm, I'm really believe this, if you told him when he was 18 and he was just becoming famous, you know, when you're 72, you'll still be singing that song and it'll, it'll be what you feel. He was like, no, no, well, I won't be singing that. Not that age. I hope I'll be dead or whatever. But, you know, when you're young and you're arrogant and all of that stuff. But his whole life, and it's a... In very influential life has caused a massive amount of damage to a lot of people's lives. But he's still expressing what is true of humanity without Christ. It's frustrated. It's not working. There's something missing. There's this, this vacuum, this alienation, this God, as we know it, the God-shaped hole. Scripture supports that. Let me just read a few verses from Psalms. This is the expression in Psalms of those who are without God. My soul, this is Psalm 6.3, my soul is in anguish 
Psalm 42, 6. My soul is downcast within me. Psalm 119. My soul is weary. My soul faints. Psalm 88, verse 3. My soul is full of trouble. See, Nebuchadnezzar is just demonstrating biblical truth. Very profoundly, Psalm 22, verse 29, David says, none can keep alive his own soul. That's how, for this man who's got all this power, all this capacity, he can't even keep alive his own soul. That's true. But how wonderfully the Psalms also say, and you anticipate this, I'm sure, Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Psalm 49, 15, God will redeem my soul from the grave. It's as good as dead. It's might as well, it's buried and useless and helpless and doing nothing for me. But my God will redeem my soul. Psalm 63, verse 5, and this is where if next time any of us write to Mick Jagger, we need to time to look this up. It says, My soul will be satisfied. Psalm 34, verse 2. My soul will boast in the Lord. And Psalm 35, verse 9, my soul will rejoice. When you have a right relationship with the living God who's designed our souls, which is our conscious life, to be in a beautiful, free, completing, holistic, uh, proactive, uh, dynamic and creative relationship with God, then your soul is satisfied. It's, It's meaningful. You've got a mind that makes that is in tune with truth. You've got emotions that are consistent with, with God's character. You've got a will that is conforming to the will of the one who knows how to make things work and do things right and resolve everything. You deny yourself that. You've denied everything. Now, the consequence of that perplexion, that frustration in Nebuchadnezzar here was anger. And that's not surprising. It says in verse 12 of this chapter 2, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. It's It's a serious. This is a guy who does it. You just click his fingers and you're gone. It doesn't surprise us because that's the nature of the human soul. That inner rage... We see it in in so many other places. We see it in Esau when he despised his birthright for the sake of the immediate satisfaction of his flesh. And when he realized that he hadn't got the blessing, he complained and entreated Isaac to bless him and basically had a pity party on the floor. Bless me, bless me. And then when the blessing didn't come, he determined in his heart to kill Jacob, to slay his brother. It's not just philosophical. It's not just an economic problem. It's not just society problem. It's actually deep-rooted nature that will kill out of anger, out of frustration, out of hatred for seeing anybody else succeed, anybody else have what I don't have. That's the first aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's nature. Second one is in chapter 3, because the, the, the dream he had, of course, is, if you know it, is this amazing um, statue of a golden, golden head and, and a breastplate of bronze, uh, of silver and breastplate of bronze and feet of iron and clay and that whole amazing image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that Daniel was able to explain to Nebuchadnezzar was his dream and then what it meant because this amazing image that looks so impressive and looks so uh, glamorous and, and so attractive was actually smashed by a rock not made with human hands and it replaced it and filled the earth with, it, with itself forever and just made this tin pot stuff fall apart and of course that we know who that is. So then Chapter 3, some time has passed. It says at the beginning here, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high. 
and nine feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. And so what's happened is this Nebuchadnezzar has, seen this, has been given this, this vision. And, and Daniel's interpretation, you are, under God at the moment, head of the world. You are the most impressive person there is. And God's favored you and blessed you and made you that. And the whole world is, is admiring it, the, the glory of Babylon. But it's God who has done it. And for a little while, Nebuchadnezzar is reflecting on that. But over time, as happens so often, the truth behind the revelation is lost. And just the revelation of, yes, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the, I'm the big boy, boy here. I deserve to be noticed. I deserve to be recognized. I deserve to be honored and worshipped. And my true status, everybody should be, should be supporting and applauding me, admiring me. And so he, he creates this statue in reflection of the vision. And it's very dangerous to only take half-truths, only take little bits of truth, only take the part of our humanity that we like, that suits us, that pleases us, and not the true story, which is that if you do, that, that kingdom is going to be smashed into, into smithereens, into nothing. And so he sets up, sets up this image, of, obviously, of himself and orchestrates everybody's submission and worship and they have to bow down to it and our three friends, who are they? Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. We're going to start this movement here. Rather than shake your bed, make your bed, and to bed you go. They refuse to bow down. And it's pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty brave. But the, the first, if, if Nebuchadnezzar first of all was perplexed, why life isn't working, why it's not going for me the way it should, despite all the stuff I can have, his second, the second nature that he exhibits in chapter 3 is pride. Look at me. I love people when they look at me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. It's satanically inspired. It's not the first time an image has been set up or that which is sought to glorify mankind. The Tower of Babel is exactly that. When Nimrod sets up this tower, Everybody to realize that he's like a god and he can commute with the gods and we understand that's pretty occultic and that whole thing. We're not surprised because in Revelation 13 we have the Antichrist image where the false prophet orchestrates the world's allegiance and, and decision to worship the Antichrist who is the false prophet, the, the beast. Pride is the, is the innate nature that we have it was the innate nature of Satan and the reason why he fell. And if we were to explore it in, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we'd find that his ambition and why he was cast out of heaven was because he wanted to be like God. In fact, it says he wanted to have his throne above the throne of God. How, what a twisted perspective. And having been cast out appropriately, he, then, he still tries to play the role of God in humanity and in the world and, and seeks to deceive us into worshipping him and not worshipping the true God who is our creator, who is our redeemer, who is our sustainer, who is the one who and who's, we're totally dependent. And Satan whispers the same lie that he whispered to Eve. You could be like God. If you take that fruit, you'll be as wise as the gods. And the inference being that God doesn't really, isn't really on your side. He likes to keep you in your place. Would you bow down to me and I'll, I'll make you what you really want to be. When he offered Jesus in the temptation, bow down to me and you can have all the kingdoms of the world. That's what you've come for, isn't it? If you are the son of man, son of God, bow down to me. Worship me. I've got you where I want you, but I'll give you everything you come for. The, king, the kings of this world, the kingdoms of this world. Nothing's changed. And when pride is, when our, when our problems, our perplexity isn't resolved, we get angry. When our pride is, is pierced, we get really angry. Do you remember Haman and Mordecai in the book of Esther? 
There's a man who's proud. Boy, you look at Haman. He's so proud, he loves himself. Lo- tells his wife, you know, I'm, the king and queen want me to have a banquet with them because really they think I'm great. I'd love to know what she thought about him, but never mind. But when Mordecai, Mordecai would not give any kind of recognition, wouldn't bow down to him as he came by, he determines he's going to kill that man. And his wife, actually, is the one who suggests, why don't you make a gallows? Help your problem. So he makes a gallows. And when he's, that, you know, the whole, I won't get into Esther, otherwise we'll be here forever. But that's the, that's the, the, the fury and the anger of human condition. The third, <clears throat> the third feature is in chapter 4. And probably a little bit less known, but Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement. And each time he's confronted by the truth through Daniel and through the three friends in chapter 3, because Daniel doesn't feature in chapter 3, he responds beautifully and appropriately and honestly. And he begins chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. He knows who he is. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Very good. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream. But they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy God is in him. <laughs> There's that revelation. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and mystery, and, the, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. And he has this dream of this a huge tree that covers the whole earth, and it feeds the whole earth. It's sufficient, and the whole earth is, is blessed by it, and people live under its benefit and live, live in, its tree, in its branches. And it's just a phenomenal image of, Babel, of the Babylonian Empire, which is arguably the most glorious, short, but the glorious empire there's ever been, with the hanging gardens of Babylon, the very... Um, some of the greatest libraries came out of that, et cetera, et cetera. But <clears throat> in the vision, he says in verse 14, while I lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Just bring it to nothing. Remove all its glory. Remove all its splendor so there's nothing left but just the very, very base trunk. And then he personalizes it. It comes, let him, before it was a tree, now it's let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the, the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by the messenger. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Some change is going on, as we'll see in a minute. And this is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. None of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And we know what this is about. So the first one is that our human nature is perplexed. We, don't, we can't figure it out. We can't work out what our humanity is supposed, how it's supposed to work, and especially when put on a big scale but, or even on a personal scale too. We're innately proud. We're innately self-serving, self-centered. It's about me. It's about me having everything up my way. Third one is we're ultimately absolutely powerless. Powerless to even sustain 
everything that we assume, our health and strength, our capacity to, to do well, to succeed, to, to provide, all of those things are themselves provided by the living God, gracious, patient, enduring, upholding God. We strut our stuff around as though we've kind of put this together, as we've kind of built this world, as though we're responsible for how it all works. I mean, listen to the politicians. No, don't listen to the politicians. Sorry, I got that wrong, didn't I? No, not to be too cynical. But Paulus, because what happens? Having been pointed this out to him and he's respected it, some time passes. And... Nebuchadnezzar says it in verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I built this. It's for me. Isn't this impressive? Aren't I wonderful? The words were still in my, on my lips. Or the words were still on his lips, verse 31, when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and you'll live with wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, etc. So it actually came to pass. And we understand the political situation. But he was isolated for seven years with this condition that's an actual medical uh, phenomena of mental incapacity. And apparently it's a, the physical f phenomena are that you do grow feathers, you do have claws. You do have a fever and, a, and sweat like the Jew, etc. And he had to be uh, contained that he didn't self-harm and, and kill himself. For seven years, out of his mind, having to be totally fed like an animal, to be kept alive. This is the guy who, who said, I, I did all this. I'm in control. This is my doing. And he's, he's removed and abased to such an extent that he's absolutely impotent to even sustain himself. Let's look at the counter to finish off with. Because that's, that's, that's human nature. Now, we're not big shots. We're not Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have that kind of canvas that our lives are painted on. But in our own world, which is our real world, I, don't want, I think I can say that it's not much different and other aspects too. But let's look at Daniel and his three friends first, briefly. Were they perplexed? I don't think so. Remember in chapter 1, God was speak, teaching them. Every, every day they were being bombarded with this Babylonian culture but it says in verse 11 of chapter 1, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Look at chapter 2 and verses uh, 21, 21b. Uh, in part of, as part of Daniel's prayer, praising God, he says in 21, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Yeah, they weren't perplexed. They, they knew who they were. In chapter 3, when the three friends, well done, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we're going to get there. HMA, we'll, we'll reduce it to that for now. When they're confronted with the fiery furnace, because they refused to bow down to this image. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious, heats the fire up seven times more, or whatever it is. They stand there. Are they confused? Are they perplexed? Going, oh, where's God? He's left us. Well, this isn't happy happening. It should all be easy for us because we're favored, whatever. No. Their attitude is one of 
clear-mindedness and, and, and clarity of, of perspective. This is, in verse, this is chapter 3 and verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. They've got it together. They're not panicking. They're not even Christian panicking, having an all-night prayer meeting or something. Not that that's wrong. I'm just saying... But they have this, we're, already, we're, in God's hand, we're in God's hands, not your hands, really. So whatever you do to us, you do to us. It's your business. But we, it doesn't, we're not, nothing needs to change. They're not perplexed. They're not confused. They're not trying to figure out how, what are we supposed to do here. Because they've been right related to the living God. And he has not just informed them intellectually, but he has transformed them character. What about the pride? Are they proud people? It comes across a little, but not at all. Look at what Daniel says back in chapter 2 and verse 30. 30. When he's able to remarkably interpret that dream, he says in verse 30, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and you may understand what went through your mind. Daniel doesn't say, well, you're good you chose me because, uh, of course, I'm the one that has, has all this stuff. and uh, you, know, you should always come to me first. No, he says, I've got nothing else than other than what's been given to me. But it's so that you may know the truth. Not proud, but humble. What about powerfulness? Were they powerful? Well, we, we saw in chapter 1, at the very last verse, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Did Nebuchadnezzar remain? Did Belshazzar remain? Did Nabonidus remain? Did all the other kings and empires remain? No, not at all. Daniel remained. He's in God's kingdom. He's in the king of kings and lord of lords. That's a different humanity than Nebuchadnezzar's. Why? Because the spirit of the holy gods was in him. Let's look at Christ. Was Christ perplexed? Was he not sure who he was? Did he ever kind of go around thinking, I wonder if I am the Messiah or not? No. At the age of 12, when his parents, who left him, he never left them, by the way, when they came and rebuked him, he said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? You, Mary, you know this. I know who I am. You should know who I am and why I have to be here. Christ was never confused or perplexed about who he was. He set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what was before him, being willing, as Hebrews said, to endure the cross. He knew it exactly all that was happening. Was he humble? Of course. Philippians 2. He who thought it not robbery to equal with God made himself nothing, took upon himself the form of a servant. God raised him up, gave him a name above every name, but he humbled himself. He affirms, blessed are the meek. It's not weakness, it's those who have power. Jesus had all power but chose to live humbly, to live under authority, live under submission. The third one, of course, is not powerless. He was power. Matthew 28, Great Commission, all power is given me in heaven and earth. All power is given me in heaven and earth. So the nature we see in Daniel and the three friends is the nature of Christ, which is actually the nature that has been imparted to us, invested in us if we have come to Christ. We've come to a saviour who died for us. We've come to one who reigns forever and one day we'll be at his feet bowing him, but we've also come to one who gives himself to us. We have two, there's two, two outcomes, two things to reflect on if you're, if, as you're listening to me. 
One is, have we ever actually received that nature, that Christ nature? Have we ever come to Christ in the sense of being willing to crucify the old nature? Have we ever admitted, come to a real understanding that our own nature is a fallen nature? It's a damaged, it's a flawed, it's a perplexed, it's a proud, it's a powerless nature. Of course I can get by in this world. I might even be favoured with some talents and some resources and some circumstances that make me a success story. I can be a Mick Jagger. People think he's great. Have we ever received Christ's nature? If not, we can only live out of our old nature. And God calls that a sinful nature. He says in Romans 8, 4, do not live according to the sinful nature. And we saw what that looks like. Or we saw what the opposite of that looks like this morning. And in our own capacity, we think it's, it's out of reach. And it is in our own capacity, as Adam said. So the first question is, have I received Christ's nature? Have I come to Christ? Have I been born again of the Spirit of God that birthed in me is Christ himself by his Holy Spirit, that his seed now is bearing fruit and living in and through me? If we haven't, then we need to do that. Otherwise, we're as lost as Nebuchadnezzar, we're as lost as a Haman. We won't be able to express it as violently and as dramatically but in our own little sense we'll end up futile we'll end up separated from God forever I exhort you to make sure you have received trusted Christ for his life to come into your life he, he wants that more than you do the second application is this as we live are we living out the new nature that we have received is our commitment in the everyday to commit to the Lord and every situation of every day, every circumstance of every day, moment by moment, situation by situation, do we consciously, and we have to do it consciously, draw upon Christ in us, knowing he's there, absolutely confident. We've been sealed by his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So it's not in doubt. We don't have to bring him in. We don't have to pray him down. We have to work it up. We just trust and rest in that assurance, that absolute rock-solid commitment of Christ to live in and through us. And say, Lord, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know. My emotions are not responding well. My decisions are maybe are not right here. But Lord, you, you, I want your mind. I want to know how you want to you express this, resolve this situation in your way or not resolve it. But, but let me be a testimony to your presence. That's what Galatians is all about. The whole, let me just finish with this quote from Galatians 5, and you, you would expect this. This is what happens when we learn what it is to bear fruit of that new nature, his spirit within us. It's Galatians, Galatians 5, and... I'm just going to read this section and then we're finished. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature, that's what we're born with and we've chosen to live out of, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in a conflict with each other so that you do not know what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. And then it lists, I won't read them out, but it lists the acts of the sinful nature. You'd expect them, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, etc. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So the two questions, have you ever received Christ's nature by his Spirit? That's being born again of the Spirit of God. If not, I 
and I exhort you to make that decision even now. If you have, but you've got, the old nature is alive and well, which it is, and is the one that actually surfaces, exercises itself, pushes the Holy Spirit out of the way so he becomes grieved, crushed, quenched, life won't be fun. In fact, it's more miserable to have the Holy Spirit in you and not live by the Spirit than it is to be a non-Christian. That's what the Bible says. It's more miserable. But it's important people understand what it is to come to Christ, is to die to that old nature, which is pleasing. It's satisfying. There's pleasure in sin for a season. But we might decide this morning, I hope we do, I hope I decide this morning, I want to live by the Spirit. I don't want to live by the old nature. When I do, it's, it's frustrating, it's pathetic, it's unimpressive, it's, it's, it's shameful. Now, that's my desire, it's my commitment this morning, but I know I can say that here in church this morning. But I have to choose that attitude tomorrow morning, Friday morning, and all day Thursday. <laughs> because I'm always going to be vulnerable to the old nature raising its ugly head so there's, there's our Daniel for this morning let me just pray to close Lord Jesus as expected we are not surprised that the very truth of the Christian life is anywhere we look in scripture in characters Thank you that you chose to reveal to us this man, Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you that we see his response. And especially at the end of chapter 4, when he acknowledges you as the living God, as the one who has all, all right and all power and all authority. And Lord, I don't know, but I would like to think we'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, but that's your decision. But I, I trust and pray that we know where our own hearts, know where we stand with you, that we make a choice, if we have never made that choice before, to submit our nature, our lives to yours and, and embrace your offer through grace of your very life because of what you did on Calvary to pay for the sin which otherwise would condemn us and separate us from you. Lord, I, we, if we've never done it before, we receive that truth, that gift, that promise and embrace it by faith. Lord, for those of us that know you and walk with you, help us to journey in such a way that every day we, we die to self and we live out of that new nature. And it will be precious, it will be true and authentic in our personality, in our circumstances, but it will glory, be glory to you and it will be of your ilk. It will be Christ himself living in and through us. So, Lord, this is our prayer this morning for Jesus' sake.